In our, in our last session, we began to take a look at um, distinguishing, or, or we discovered that there's a drastic difference um, between being tested and being tempted. And uh, just to kind of flatter me a little bit to see that you actually do learn something every week when you're here, and then you take it home and you actually, you know, incorporate it, you, you apply it. What is the difference, or let me ask you this question, what is a trial? And it's amazing to me, we had some great conversations after last week um, that helped to try to identify some of the confusion that's there, but it, what's, what's the, uh, what, what is a trial? It's a test, a test for what purpose? Pardon me? Faith. Test to, uh, can elaborate on that a little bit, test for faith. Okay, yeah, growing, confirming your faith, it's a, it's a test that will, it has an end result, right? And the end result is what? Wrong. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being more sensitive, so, oh, maybe that's right and maybe that's not. That's wrong. <laughs> now, we'll talk about it in a minute. I love that. Just jump right in there. It's, it's funny, you know, I'm losing a lot of participation over the years, but... But there's still a few new people every now and then that don't get it yet. Um, it's uh, Marion. Okay, to conform you into the image of God. It's a test, a trial, a test of your faith. But your faith in what? See, here's what, we got. We got a problem in this area, especially now in our society. It's not a, a test of your faith in your faith. It's a test of your faith in God. See, a lot of us, you know, this, this movement that has to do with, well, the reason you weren't healed is because your, your faith's not strong enough. Well, your faith in what? Your faith in your own faith? No, it's not your faith in your own faith. It is a matter of your faith in God, an objective standard. Do you have the faith that you say you do and confidence and trust in God? Like Bill was saying. You take somebody who's having a tough time business-wise, and it is a trial, a testing of your faith. Of your faith in whom? In God. To see whether He is trustworthy as you think that He is. To see whether that you can count on Him and rely on Him and lean upon Him. See, it's a, it's a faith in God and His objective standard, which is His Word. The promises that He makes as far as who He is and what He can do in our lives. So, a trial is a test of our faith that ultimately produces endurance. Like Janet said, the ability, he doesn't promise you a rose garden here on earth. We're going to have a great time in all of eternity. But what he does promise you is that when we're going through trials or tests, that he is trustworthy and that we can depend upon him. We can turn to him in tough times and say, Lord, hey... You know, I want to meet the needs of my family, and I'll do everything that I can, but I'm just going to have to trust you because they're yours anyway, so I'm, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to depend on you. And I know you're trustworthy because you've never let your people down. I've seen it over and over again in your word that you guarantee that you'll take care of your people. Now, needs and greeds are two different things, and the level in which we believe that that's the case varies tremendously. But God does promise, Matthew 6, that He'll take care of all of our needs. He says, look at the birds, look at the, look at the, the trees, look at the flowers. Does not God take care of all that? Won't He take care of us even much more, since we are made in His image and His likeness? See, so it's a test or a trial that has an end result, and the end result is perfection or maturity. All right, now here's where some confusion comes in. 
in a trial doesn't mean that you've done anything immoral. If you're going through a reversal and a financial reversal, it doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. If you go through an illness, if you, if you lose a loved one, it doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong. There's nothing immoral about going through a trial. And so many of us look at that and start to wonder and try to figure out, well, why is God doing this to me? Well, there could be two reasons. Give me a couple of reasons why God could, quote, be doing that to you. Pardon me? Okay, yeah, to go through what we just said, the process of bringing about growth. And that's why it says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Because you know the testing of your faith will produce endurance, and endurance will lead to its ultimate end, its perfection, which is maturity in your faith. To be able to fully have 100% confidence that God is who He says He is, and He can do what He says He can do. To bring you to that point. So you can have joy in the midst of a trial, knowing that God's end result is going to be good. But, see, why else do things happen to us? Okay, it's to equip us, to prepare us, so that we can help others who are somewhere along in this walk with the Lord. You take a new Christian who's not sure whether they can trust God yet. They haven't been through all the things that we've been through. And they haven't seen God's faithfulness. And they're not sure whether they can trust Him or not. And they're not sure whether they're going to have to revert back to their old ways and trying to, you know, the survival of the fittest. Come up with creative ways to keep take care of yourself and your family and do all these things. And yet, as we've gone through it, we can then turn to them and say, Look, let me just tell you some things that God has taken us through. And He has been faithful. And we then can be equipped to share that with others who aren't quite at that point yet. And many of us are at different levels of growth, and that's okay. That's what growth is all about. But we, once we get to those points, to turn and be able to help those who are still struggling with trying to take things into their own hands. But you know why else we could be going through it? The consequences of sin. See, there's the confusion. That's why we need to examine ourselves to see if there's something in us that we have done that God is disciplining us for. Is there a reason we're going through an economic reversal, so to speak? Or is there some things that we've been doing that aren't right before God? And God says, don't be deceived. I'm not going to be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. Payday someday. So we struggle with trying to identify what really is a trial for the purpose of perfecting us or really what God is doing as far as discipline. So there's a confusion there. Now let me ask you this question. When does a trial become a temptation? Does a trial become a temptation? Here is a good point that we had great conversation with last week, a few of us, trying to distinguish this in our own mind so that we could recognize what temptation is. Does a, does a trial ever become a temptation? Ooh, okay, this would be good. How many say yes? It's okay, raise your hand. Okay. How many say no? Okay, now... Let me ask you a question. What is the end result of a trial? Oh, okay, see? The end result of a trial is growth, spiritual growth, endurance, to be able to go through tough times knowing that you can trust God. The end result of a trial is always closer fellowship with God. That's why it says, consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. Because you know the testing of your faith is going to lead to a positive result as far as your spiritual life is concerned. Now, where the confusion comes in, and it's obvious by the number of hands that were raised, at what point does a trial ever become a temptation? It doesn't. 
All right? Let me explain to you why. Let's just take this. I've got to put these things into, into my own kind of thought process, so I know some of you are kind of going to have to stoop real low to catch up with me here. But think about it this way. Okay? You're in downtown L.A., and your trial starts. The end result, you're going to travel on the 10 freeway. How many of you know what the 10 freeway is? I'm trying to take one we know. We all know that one? All right, good. Some of you gals can help your husband, you know, with the navigation here. Because we know you got the gift. Okay. So you're going to start in L.A., all right? And the end of our trial, how many of you like Palm Springs? Oh, don't be embarrassed. Gee. Do you like Palm Springs? Okay, if you like Palm Springs, this is going to work for you. If you don't, it's going to really be confusing. But let's just assume you like Palm Springs. Okay, the trial starts in downtown L.A., and you're going to travel on the 10 freeway all the way into Palm Springs. All right? Let's picture Palm Springs as being the place of final destiny, growth, endurance, close fellowship with God. As you're traveling on the 10 freeway, God says, hey, you can, have, you can have joy. Why? Because you know what the final destiny is going to be. Now, the point is, at what, where along the 10 freeway does a trial ever become a temptation? Okay. Oh, good. Yeah, see, when you get off in Fontana and you think that that's the final destination... Is there anyone here from Fontana? Good. (laughs) Then that'll work. But you see, here's the problem. Let's just now hear it. Now now keep it in the same same context, okay? All along the 10 freeway, you've got off-ramps from L.A. to Palm Springs. Okay, you've got interchanges. You've got the 710. You've got the 605. You've got the 57210. You've got the 15. You've got the 215. All along the 10 freeway, there are a bunch of places you can jump off. All right? Now, picture that as temptation. Anywhere along that route, or route, or road, anywhere along that passage of travel, you can get off anywhere. And it's just not the big interchanges. There's subtle little interchanges, too. There's subtle little off-ramps. You can get off all over the place. And see, as we're going through this trial, what we're going to face is temptation to miss the final destination. Does that help you make it a little more clear? All right, now let's go back, and maybe this will all make a little bit more sense. Because we've seen that temptation is anything that will entice us to do wrong by promising to provide pleasure. All right? Anything that will entice us to do wrong, at anywhere along the 10 freeway, there's going to be enticement to jump off to provide temporary pleasure. See, and we can go along a trial, and we didn't do anything. We just fell, quote, fell into it. God has allowed it to happen for the purpose of getting us to Palm Springs. Because it's going to be neat when we get there. But all along the way, we are going to struggle with getting off before we get to where God wants to take us. Okay? For example, Job went through a trial. Financial downturn, loss of a job, loss of loved ones. Criticism and ridicule by 
people that are close to him, uh, loss of material possessions. He went through all of that. What did he do wrong? Absolutely nothing. The Bible says he was a God-fearing man. He was blameless and upright in all of his deeds. There was not, I mean, he didn't do anything. But God allowed him to go through the trial to get him to Palm Springs. Okay, so as he was going, now what's some of the temptations that he struggled with? Pardon me? Okay, see, the first temptation was, you remember in Job 1 and 2, it said this, And in all these things, Job never cursed, never blamed God nor cursed him with his lips. At some point during his trip, he had been tempted to blame God. He had been tempted to curse God. He had been tempted to sin with his lips. Many of us are on the 10 freeway right now, and you know it and I know it, and we're going through some tough times. And what's happening is that we're constantly being tempted to blame God as if somehow God has let us down. God, you promised me a rose garden. I don't know who told me that or where I heard it or where I read it, but I know you did, and you haven't delivered, and it's all your fault. Job's wife said to him, curse God and die. Blame God. You still, after all these things, hold fast to your confidence in the God who would allow all this to happen to you? And Job never cursed God, nor did he blame him once. See, but the temptation was there to get off the off-ramp, to sin before God, and to blame God for what he did. That's why when we go back to this passage in James, in chapter 1, 13 through 16, we see some facts about temptation that now maybe will make a little bit more sense. See, and that is that temptation, there's nothing, number one, there's nothing wrong with temptation. Temptation is as inevitable as off-ramps on the freeway. They're there all over the place. And it's okay to be tempted. There's nothing wrong with Job to be tempted to curse God. The only problem that he would have is if he got off the off-ramp and decided to curse God. The second point is just as critical. Nothing wrong with temptation. We all go through it. So don't feel guilty about struggling with that thought process. We struggle with it. We need to be honest before God. Somebody who loses a loved one close to them, it's okay to feel that you're struggling. And although you have all the head knowledge in the world, the emotional part of our life sometimes don't uh, identify with that intellect or the knowledge that we've gained, the wisdom from Scripture. And so we struggle with it. I know this is all right, but I can't accommodate it at this point in my life. I'm upset. I'm hurt. I'm whatever. God is struggling with a job and job situation. I know God's provided for us. I know where he's brought me from. I know all of that. But right now, it's just real hard to see him pulling me through on this one. And that's the emotional side of life. And it's okay to express that before God. And we're going to talk about how you deal with that in practical terms. But the reality of it is we're all going to go through it. But one thing is true, and we need to understand, God is never standing along the way at all these different off-ramps saying, why don't you turn off here? Why don't you turn off here? And it's like, I can't meet your needs, so maybe you better get creative and try to figure out some way to do it yourself. God is never standing along the 605 freeway yelling, okay, let's go south here, big guy. He isn't doing that. Why? Because it's impossible for God to tempt any of us to do anything that's evil because it's, it's beyond his character. And God, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And God cannot have fellowship with darkness because he is holy, he is perfect, he is separated from sin. God can't offer temptation to you as some type of a, an off-ramp to the trial and result that he wants to take you to. 
And it becomes very practical, and we'll see that in a, in a little while. But temptation's an individual matter. You're driving down the 10 freeway, and there's a lot of different off-ramps, and there are some off-ramps that are going to entice you more than they'd entice me. Somebody may actually want to get off in Fontana. You know, I can't think of too many places along the 10 that I'd want to get off, but there may be some place that would entice me. There may be big lights and balloons that are, you know, you know how that is when they've got those freeway signs and the lights are flashing and the balloons are hanging above a building and it's like, hey, there's something going on there. Let's go check it out. And that's the enticement. Now, that may do nothing for me, but I know that if there was like some kind of uh, outlet somewhere that it may get my wife turning off the road. <clears throat> but that's this way. Oh, 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 oh. Like, oh, come on, see, whiz. It's like, ooh, his wife goes to outlets. <laughs> they, they, hey, all outlets survive on that. I mean, that's why they're there, right? If no one went, they wouldn't be there. But if you look at that, it, you go through it and you say, okay, well, so we're, we're all enticed by different things. But then temptation always has its final result, too. And that is once you get off that off-ramp, it's kind of like being back east. How many of you have ever driven back east? Have you ever noticed you can get off an off-ramp and you can't get back on? That's like the most shocking thing in the world because it's like, here, you can drive, you get off. It's like, oh, got off too far. Okay, that's all right. We'll get on right back here again. Man, I was in Atlanta a couple months ago and I got off the off-ramp and we were having chapel for the, the Rams in downtown Atlanta and it was like, I couldn't figure out how to get back on. And it was like, you know, at midnight by the time all the meetings and stuff were done, I was going to drive back out to a friend's house and I was like driving around in circles. And one thing you don't do is you don't stop and ask for directions at midnight on some alley somewhere, you know, in, in downtown. It just doesn't work too well for you. It's like, you're lost? <laughs> do you have any money? It's like, I drive around forever. I don't, I don't stop and ask for directions even when it's daylight around here. So, you know, because I'm a guy. That's right. Thank you very much. And guys just don't do that. But maybe, I don't know, maybe the men of the 90s will. But I just, I don't do it. I don't do it. So anyway, it's kind of like you get off that off-ramp and you can't get back on. It's not that easy to get back on and head back to Palm Springs. You're off and sometimes you get lost. Now, as we go through all this, we need to identify some ways to practically handle temptation. And we're going to take a look at four ways. Four ways to practically handle temptation. I guess in, in reality it would be four ways to resist temptation. And by the way, you don't have to be going through a trial to be tempted, right? Hey, things could be going great in your life. And some, I mean, it's like, think about the garden for a minute. How tough was the garden? I don't think there was any recession or economic downturn there. Things were going along pretty good. See, and the problem with when things are going good, temptation's even more subtle. Because when things are going tough, when you're in the middle of a trial, if you begin to clearly identify what your options are at that point. Okay, I either trust God, or I cheat, or I steal, or I lie, or somehow I revert back to the old sin nature that says, hey, if you don't take, if, if you don't take care of yourself, who's going to? Right? So you get creative. And it becomes more obvious. 
But when things are going good, that's when you can subtly be tempted and turn off the road and not even know it. It's kind of like, hey, things are going great in the garden. Why don't you have some of this fruit? Well, I don't know. Well, okay. You know, that's the way it is. And so you don't have to be going through a trial to be tempted. So the practical ways to deal with it are all going to basically boil down to one thing. Just say no. Really? I mean, it, it, that's what it's going to come down to, whether you believe it or not. It all comes down to the same thing. Just say no. John Wesley said this. Give me men who love nothing but God and hate nothing but sin. See, that's really it. Give me men and women who love nothing but God and hate nothing but sin. And that's what it comes down to. It comes down to a passionate hate of sin. It comes down to a passionate hate for the consequences and the lies and the deception of an enemy who wants to detour you off of the road to Palm Springs and stick you somewhere in Fontana and leave you there. And let's just pray no one from Fontana ever gets a hold of this tape. <laughs> but that's what it comes down to. A passionate hatred for sin and a passionate love for God who we can trust and who has proven to be trustworthy. Number one, four practical ways to handle temptation. Number one, don't tolerate it. Romans 6, 12 through 13. It's amazing to me how simple this is, but how profound it is, and most simple things can tend to be profound, but don't tolerate temptation. It says, therefore, in Romans 6, 12 through 13, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. And he gives us a contrast, but let's just stop there for a moment. What's he saying is a way to deal with temptation? What's a practical way to deal with temptation? Stop flirting with it. Stop playing with it. Stop messing around with it. Romans 6 is a whole chapter that deals with sin. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say? So Shall we continue to sin so that God's grace may increase? Well, how can it be? May it never be. How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? What he's saying is, wait a minute, folks. How can you continue to live in sin even though you've been freed? If you've come to know Christ, you've been freed from the bondage of sin and now you no longer have to continue to live in that type of lifestyle. Why do you continue to mess around with it? Why do you continue to fool around with it? See, what he's saying is, don't tolerate temptation. We have become a people who accommodate little sin areas of our life as if somehow that's okay. We say, but God, I've turned away from all the rest of this stuff, but I just have this one little closet in my life that I just can't get freed from this, and I'm just going to hang on to it for a little while. So we mess around with it as if it's okay just to have that. You know, and you get sick and tired of hearing people say, well, you know, but God's done some tremendous things. He's freed me from this, 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 and this. And hey, you don't expect Him to free me from everything, do you? Well, gee, I don't know, but God expected to free you from everything. Either Jesus' death and blood shed on the cross will free you from everything or it won't. So why would you want to hang on to something? And we continue to, to flirt with sin. We continue to nibble the bait to keep it in the old you know, analogy of fishing. We continue to nibble the bait because there's something destructive in our sin nature that says, hey, how far can I go before I get caught? It's like the dating game. How far can I go before I call it whatever God calls it? We keep drawing the line and keep moving it back and moving it back. How far can I go before it's really lying? How far can I go before it's really cheating? 
that's not really cheating, is it? I mean, that's what everybody in the industry does. That's how everyone turns their expense account in. That's how that all happens. That's not really cheating, is it? No, that's what God wouldn't call that cheating, would he? God doesn't call that lying, would he? He knows my heart and he knows why I said what I said because it really it's the end result that we're looking for and the means to the end really doesn't make any difference, does it? See, and we begin to accommodate little areas of our life and we compromise and say, that's okay. And we get just turned off on these little off-ramps because the 605 interchange or 710 or the, or the 215 is too obvious, so we'll just take the little detours and that'll be okay. What he says is stop accommodating that nonsense in your life. Stop flirting with it. You know, it's amazing. It's kind of like, you know, I bet you, I bet you can't do that and get away with it. Oh, yeah? Yes, I can. Watch this. How foolish we are. God says, don't be deceived. I'm not mocked. You better straighten up because whatever you sow, you're going to reap it, brother. I don't care if it's in a year or two years or five years or ten years. One day's payday. Don't accommodate sin in your life as if it's okay. Don't tolerate temptation. It's kind of like, hey, you know what? In, in Roman, uh, Proverbs 6, it says this. Hey, can a man mess with fire and not get burned? In the context, it's talking about sexual immorality, but it's just saying, hey, do you think you can do that and get away with it? God can't play with fire and not get burned. He's going to get burned. He's going to get hurt. And a lot of people get hurt too. I guess here, here's the practical things. Hey, if certain music causes you to weaken you in your walk with the Lord, don't listen to it. Just don't turn that station on. Don't listen to whoever it is that's giving you and feeding you the junk that wants to take you in the wrong direction. Certain television shows, certain movies, certain videos, don't rent them. Don't watch it. If it isn't drawing you closer to Christ, it's drawing you away from Him. There's only two directions to go. You're not staying status quo. You're going one way, all, you're going one direction all the time. You're either drawing closer to the Lord or you're going away from Him. That's as simple as it gets. Hey, if you've got a problem with finances and things like that, then don't be the treasurer. Right? If that's a weak area of your life, as it was obvious in, in Judas's life as we look at the account of his life, then don't handle the money. Doesn't make any sense. If, you got, if people cause you to stumble in your walk with Christ, stay away from them. I don't care who they are. But it's so-and-so. Well, who cares who it is? If they're causing you to stumble, stay away from them. Don't tolerate the temptations that come along with being in a certain group of people. Stay away. Hey, if a certain date, certain person, don't date that person. Stay away from that person. I mean, that's as simple as it gets. And I guess sometimes it's so simple that it's so profound that it's hard to understand how that could actually work. But he's just saying, hey, guess what? You can't continue to do this. If certain habits draw you away from the Lord, stop them. It's kind of like, well, what, what harm can one drink do? Hey, a lot. Ask some people who struggle with it. Well, I mean, doing some drugs at a party, big deal. You know, what could that hurt? A lot. See, don't accommodate the nonsense in your life. This is what Dag Hammarskjöld, who was a former Secretary General of the United Nations, he said this. You cannot play with the animal in you without becoming holy animal. Play with falsehood without forfeiting your right to truth. Play with cruelty without losing your sensitivity of mind. He who wants to keep his garden tidy does not reserve a plot for weeds. That's a wonderful analogy of what we're talking about. Here's a guy from Texas. Even Texans can have some wisdom. 
if led by God. <laughs> he writes this in his book, Be the Leader That You Were Meant to Be. He says, Rattlesnakes are fairly common where I live. I encounter one almost every summer. It's a frightening experience to see a rattlesnake coiled, looking at you, ready to strike. He's lightning quick and accurate. I have a two-point program for rattlesnakes. Shun and avoid. You don't need much insight to figure out what to do with something as dangerous as an old diamondback rattler. You just don't mess around with them. I like that. Not the accent. Or... <laughs> Shun and avoid. Shun and avoid. If we are smart enough to avoid rattlesnakes, why aren't we smarter to avoid temptation? Shun and avoid. That's why it goes on and says this. Hey, but you know what? Rather than put yourself into areas of temptation, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. Take yourself out of this setting and put yourself over into this setting. Stop doing what's wrong and flirting with it and start doing what's right. It's as simple as a gift. Rather, close yourself, Romans 13, 14. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. We need, a, we need some right thinking. Stop tolerating temptation and begin to think of ways that you can live to please the Lord. Number two, use the right resistance. It's interesting that, you know what, there's different resistance mentioned for different temptation in scripture. One thing that's very clear, and when, it's se- when sexual immorality is involved, the resistance that God says to use is very simple. Just run for your life. 1 Corinthians 6.18 just says, run for your life. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins that a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Get up and run. Get out of wherever you are. And I tell, you know, hey, if you're at a party, then run out of there as fast as you can if it's going to lead in that direction. If you're in a car alone with someone, then just get out of there. If you're at a house alone with someone, then just get out of the house. Just run for your life because you're about to be destroyed by temptation. If you flirt and nibble, and sometimes the nibbling is an earlobe, by the way. You know, we're nibbling on things that we shouldn't be nibbling on, and at least all kind of problems and so you know whatever it is that you're doing stop doing it he says just get out of there and run for your life Genesis 39 1 through 13 look at the story of Joseph hey run oh but I can handle it then you're a foolish person you're a fool you're a fool who will continue to uh, flirt with danger. You're a fool who continue to stick his hand in the fire and think you're not going to get burned you're a fool that's what God says you are a foolish person If you think that somehow you're stronger than this temptation, you're nuts. You're not. Oh, I should beat around the bush a little bit more, huh? 2 Timothy 2.22, flee evil desires. Flee the evil desires of youth. And isn't it interesting that, you know what, sometimes uh, younger people have a tendency to be more foolish in these areas than older people, though many of us can't have setbacks in our older age. But the reality of it is, is that younger people don't see the danger there. And hey, all you do is get burned by fire a couple of times and you realize how dangerous it is. And what we need to do, as Paul did in the case of Timothy, saying, hey, flee from those youthful desires. Flee from those things. Another example that, that I think is interesting too is that maybe you have to make like Job did. Job 31.1 says that he made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully after a girl. I like that. What he said was, Lord, I'm going to have to make you a promise. I'm not going to give women the eye 
You know the eye? We talk about the eye. Or the eyes. You know, what is that? What is the eyes? Come on. What's that? That second look, or that look that maybe kind of has your tongue hanging out along with it. You know, although that, that's a little bit more graphic than, you know, usually that, that's what you're thinking. It's not hanging out there because that's not too cool. But you just kind of just go. You know, and so what Job was saying was he made a covenant before God. God, I'm not going to do that to any women. Hey, men, maybe we ought to walk out of here making the same covenant. I'm not going to look at my secretary like that. I'm not going to look at the gal parked next to me in traffic like that. I'm not going to look at the gal, the waitress, like that. I'm not going to look at women like that. God, I'm going to make a covenant to you, a commitment to you, that I'm never going to look at anybody in a lustful way, except if you're married, your wife. And she'd probably die because she hasn't seen that look since before you got married. But I'll tell you what, you give it to her and you get the grin, you will, right? And that's what Job said. Proverbs 4.25, let your eyes look straight ahead, fix your gaze directly before you. And what I'd say is, fix your gaze directly on the Lord Jesus Christ. You look at Him and you remember what He did on the cross for you. And maybe some of this nonsense that we've got going on in our life will stop. Don't tolerate temptation and also use the right resistance. And uh, I think it's also important to consider this third point, and that is remember that the final pain is always greater than the temporary pleasure. Remember that the final pain is always greater than the temporary pleasure. Now, this is really important. In uh, Hebrews eleven twenty four and 25, it says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time or for a season. You know what he's saying? He grew up. It's a mark of spiritual maturity to grow up and to realize that temporary pleasure is never worth the final consequences or the, the outcome of sin. What he's saying is that spiritual maturity is a person who can say, you know what, I'm not going to cave in or give in. I'm going to stand firm and I'm going to trust God in this circumstance even though the expedient thing to do would be to compromise and to do something not pleasing to God to save my butt right now but I'm going to hold in there and just trust God and I'm going to trust Him because I know if I sell out today the long term consequences are going to be greater than any kind of compromise that I could do today. That's growing up. And it's also important to note that sin is pleasurable so don't misread this. I had a friend who, who was cheating on his wife and he said to me, he goes, Chuck, you know what? I've always been told that sin wasn't pleasurable. I've always been told of the consequences of sin. And you know what happened? I started screwing around with this gal and the next thing I knew, sex was great. Guess what he read it as? As a sign from God that it was okay. Well, it shouldn't be this enjoyable. This is great stuff. Regretfully, some of the greatest sex in the world is outside of marriage because of the thrill and the enticement and all that goes along with it, none of the responsibilities and all that kind of stuff. And so it's fun. And he came to me and said, this is, it was fun. And I noticed he said, it was fun. Because this was past tense, 
after it all came out in the open and he was dealing with the mess that now occurred in his life. But the point that he made to me was very, very true and very accurate from a biblical perspective, and that is this. He said, Chuck, make sure you tell people that sin is pleasurable and don't let them misread it as being okay from God because it's not. Now, some of us think, oh, how silly that is. But you know what? You're doing stuff just as stupid. You're compromising in areas that you think it's okay. It's not that big a deal. And maybe it's not as obvious as that, but you know what it is. And the point is very simple. The long-term consequences of sin are always greater than the short-term pleasures. That's as simple as it gets. You don't think so? Ask magic. You don't think so? Ask a man who lost his wife and his kids because he was out messing around with his secretary. You don't think so? Ask a man who was embezzling money from his company and now is facing 10 to 20 years in prison. Hey, it was fun. It was exciting. It meant the needs of the moment. Who cares about tomorrow? Who cares about the consequences? Let's just sell out for today. Let's worry about tomorrow. Who, After all, we may not be around tomorrow, so we may not have to live to face the consequences. But somebody will. There's always consequences of sin. Hey, ask the, you know, maybe that's the attitude of the guy who fell off the boat in the Canary Islands, right? He got off easy. He's dead. Ask his kids and his family and his employees and the company that's left to try to figure out where 560 millions of pension money went. There's always consequences of sin. Just because you may not think that you're going to have to experience them personally, there's a lot of other people around you who will. See, you know, ask all these people. Maybe that's what we should do. Remember that the final pain is always greater than the temporary pleasure. And then the, and, and the last thing... Well, you know what? Let me... Well, let me come back to that. And number four, memorize the Word of God. Memorize the Word of God. You want to deal with temptation where it needs to be dealt with? The greatest weapon that you have going for you at your disposal is not only the Holy Spirit who lives within you if you've come to know Jesus Christ, not only the power of God who indwells you, but also the power of the Word of God. I'll tell you what, it's amazing how when I am tempted to detour off the path that God wants me to go on, how many times He brings back to my remembrance passages of Scripture and verses that deal exactly with that subject. The power of the Word of God. Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? How can he live right before God? Very easy. Just do it and live according to the word of God. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart, God, so that I don't sin against you. And you know what? It works. It works. But you know what? We're lazy. We're a bunch of lazy people. We want somebody else to do all the work. We want somebody else to do all the study. We want somebody else to do the overheads and put them up so we can sit back and look at them. And we don't go home and we don't study the scripture. We don't memorize scripture. We expect somebody else to do it all for us. And let me tell you something from a selfish standpoint. I appreciate the fact that you come to listen to this because it gives me some uh, responsibility and incentive and encouragement to study like I'm supposed to be studying. And you know what's amazing? I go on vacation and stuff and I get as flaky as, as anybody else. And I need this to be able to stay as into the word as I should. But we all should be doing it anyway. And so I want to encourage you to memorize scripture. Encourage you to stop messing around and flirting with temptation. 
I encourage you to re- use the right resistance. And the only way you know what the right resistance is if you know the word of God and what the resistance is that God says to use. And you know what? If it worked for Jesus, it sure should work for us. Matthew 4, 3 and 4, the, the Satan came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered and said, Hey, you know what? It's written. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus used scripture. Gee, that should tell us something. And he went on again and he said, Jesus answered him again. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The power of the word of God cannot in any way be overestimated. Power. The power of the word of God. How many of you know it? When you're in a situation like that, do you know the word of God? Will God use that in your life to fight the temptation or the combat, the urge or the desire to turn off in Fontana? Will he say, stay on this road and trust me and don't fall into temptation? Remember the final consequences are always going to be greater than the temporary pleasure. Remember these things. They're all told to us for the purpose of helping us to identify the same struggles that God's people have always gone through and also the same answers that we can employ ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a a German theologian, he devoutly loved Jesus Christ. And he was hung at the age of 39 by the black guards, the Nazi Nazi SS guards, in April of 1945. This is what he says in his manuscript called Temptation. He says, In our members there is a slumbering inclination towards desire which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. And it makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money or finally that strange desire for the beauty of the world of nature. Joy in God is extinguished in us and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. And now as falsehood is added to this proof of strength. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and and the will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken away from us. The questions present themselves. Is what the flesh really desires in this case a sin? Is it really not permitted for me, yes, even expected of me now here in my particular situation to appease these desires? The tempter puts in a privileged position as he tried to put the hungry son of God in a privileged position. I boast of my privilege before God. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. Isn't that amazing? can't really be wrong in this case, could it? I mean, God knows. He understands. He knows all the complications and all the things involved. He knows what I need to do. He knows what my heart is. He knows I'm trying to do right. But God always says, hey, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. The sacrifices of God are obedience to obey the word of God. It doesn't get any simpler than that. When I was growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, there was a little town north of us. And uh, I remember that, that they had built a, uh, a red brick building. It was a new city hall. 
and inside the city hall was the police department, it was the fire department, and it was also the seat of government for that particular town. And it was a gorgeous building, and the people were excited about it. And as time went along, all of a sudden little cracks began to appear in the, in the uh, plaster on the walls. And the windows wouldn't shut as tight as they used to shut. And the doors began to become ajar a so that they wouldn't shut right. And there was cracks in the sidewalk, and the sidewalk began to buckle and rise. And as the year went along, within a year, the building had to be condemned. And they couldn't figure out what was going on, so they brought in an expensive investigation, and they went through it, and they did a soil analysis, and they did engineering reports, and they did all the things that were necessary to do to try to figure out why in the world a brand-new building would be condemned within a year. And what they find, found was that in that particular area, as all that area is, it was, mining it was a mining company that had abandoned some coal mines that weren't far from where that building was built. There was an abandoned mine shaft that wasn't very far from where the foundation was laid. And as a result, over the period of a year, when the water began to fill up during the rains and during the snow in the winter, it began to sink and the ground began to settle. And although no one could see it, because on the outside everything looked fine, on the inside or underneath, hidden away, was an area that no one could see, that it was devastating the exterior. And I thought, isn't that an interesting analogy of what compromise and what accommodating sin is all about in the life of a Christian? We just have a little area of our life that we think that it's okay just to keep struggling with this. And it's below the surface and nobody sees it. They just see the exterior. They see how good we look. They see us say the right things. They even see us come to church. They see us go to Bible study. They see all of the good things. And yet, what we don't see is what God sees. And that is, there's nothing that's, that's hidden from God. Everything is open and laid bare to Him to whom we have to do. And the reality of it is very simply this. If you've got a hidden area of your life, it's going to erode and your building's going to be condemned just as sure as that building was back in Pennsylvania. You can't flirt with danger. You can't play with fire without being burned. And if you've got an area of your life that you are accommodating and tolerating temptation, I'll guarantee you the consequences are as real as what God says they are. You will be hooked, you will be skinned, you'll be gutted, and you'll be fried. Stop messing with it. It's going to destroy your life. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this opportunity to uh, just to be together again, just to look at a practical segment of your word as always it is. And help us to uh, deal with areas of our life that are hidden from so many people, but not hidden from you. You tell us not to deceive ourselves. You tell us not to deceive ourselves in the, in the process of temptation, to recognize the danger of it. And you also give us very practical advice on how to resist them. God, you tell us that there's always a way of escape if we chose, choose to go your, your path, to follow you, to do what's right. Lord, help us to understand that the trials that we go through are allowed by you for your purposes to draw us closer to yourself, to prove that you really are trustworthy and reliable, to take us to a place where we can endure the difficult times here on earth and also to equip us to help others who are going through the same thing and yet haven't discovered how faithful you really are. God, help us to realize that as we're going along that, that path that there are many off-ramps that we'll call temptation. Things that deviate us from your final destination, things that, the, that Satan and even ourselves, our own sin nature, want to use to destroy us and not take us to the end result. 
God, we're just grateful that he who began a good work in us will continue it into the day of Christ Jesus, that we can depend on that, we can count on it, and as a result, we can have joy in the midst of all of our trials. Lord, we thank you, and we just pray that you'll give us the strength to cut off relationships that aren't good for our relationship with you, to stop looking at things and doing things and reading things that are drawing us further away from you, to, uh, to resist by memorizing your word, to understand the word of God and the power of the word of God as, as it overcomes evil. And Lord, we just thank you for that, and we ask that uh, you just give us the, the courage, the incentive to want to dig into your word as eagerly as we're told in Psalm 119, that we can hide it in our hearts so that we don't sin against you. And we just thank you for all the pain that you'll keep us from that we'll never know because we walk in obedience with you. In Christ's name, amen.